0: We've been focused for a year now on how to respond to the pandemic. But the thing about public health is if you're responding, you're doing it wrong. It's all about preparation. Mm. And what this pandemic has shown us is that our preparations, not just, you know, for a pandemic, but our preparations for any sort of uh, potential shock, and there will be many coming uh, around the bend, as Texas has shown us,
1: has been so minimal. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek
2: and I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we've got a, a rare dual guest podcast um, for everyone. We have uh, re- re- returning champion Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, uh, who is a uh, you know, physician, epidemiologist, um, ran for the governor uh, uh, governorship of Michigan, and um, has a great newsletter as well as a podcast. So fellow uh, uh, podcaster, we, we we must respect, you know, members of the tribe. Um, Solidarity. And also uh, Dr. Micah Johnson, who is a, a physician in Boston, if I'm not mistaken, as well as a, a policy advisor um, to uh, various folks. And they are the co-authors of a new book called Medicare for All. Is that the, am I remembering this correctly?
1: A Citizen's Guide.
2: A Citizen's, a citizen's guide. guide, yeah. So basically, you know, sort of brief on the case for Medicare for All with some great, um, you know, some history, some policy analysis, you know, written by a, a, couple, of, a couple of folks who uh, know what they're talking about and uh, have a lot of good stories to tell in there. So I just finished reading it and it's uh, great stuff. Definitely recommend it if you're in the market for something like that. So welcome to the show, guys. Hey, thank you so much for having us. I have an initial
1: question about uh, these two Rhodes Scholars before us. Now, does Micah think that you're only a doctor because of your MD, or does your DPhil count to call you a doctor?
3: Micah, that's one for you, man. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Abdul's got the double doctorate, you know, so you got to respect.
0: The funny thing is when I... When I ran, I got a hit job article. I don't practice medicine day to day. Uh, I, I chose not to do a residency when I graduated. Um, and instead, my work's been focused on epidemiology. But I got the hit job article that says, uh, Abdul Al-Sayed touts his doctor credentials but doesn't practice medicine. Uh, Or does not have a medical license, and I was just like, "Wow, you know, they say you have to work twice as hard to get half as far." This is like a perfect example.
2: (laughs) No joke. Well, what you know? I mean, what relevance could epidemiology possibly have at a time like this? I mean, come on. Well, I mean, Ryan, now everyone is an epidemiologist,
0: right? Like everyone on Twitter has their own epidemiology take. I'm just like, I guess I'm superfluous here. I guess y'all don't need need to hear anything about what I have to say.
1: So, turns out all you needed was an app, Abdul. You just needed an app. No, but but seriously, for for everyone who doesn't know, uh, besides that the pedigrees, um, obviously Abdul's you know been involved in politics and was uh, you know a key proxy and advisor to Bernie Sanders, involved also in kind of negotiations among the uh, Sanders team and the Biden team. But um, but Micah, you you were involved in advising Elizabeth Warren as well, and and have had a history in politics also, right?
3: Yeah. So alongside my medical training and now medical career, I've been working in health policy for a number of years now, worked with Abdul when he ran for governor of Michigan, have worked in the U.S. House of Representatives and helped on um, with a number of the, the policy efforts in the, in the Democratic primary, um, giving technical advice to the Warren campaign, helping out with the Sanders-Biden Unity Task Force and Abdul's work on that. And um, so excited to to be to be a part of the conversation. I think one of the things that we try to bring in the book is that Abdul and I have had so many different experiences all around this core issue of health in mm-hmm. the healthcare system. And I think one of the unique things that we try to bring is to stitch together our different perspectives.
2: Absolutely, yeah. And so the first question I, I've got down uh, here is actually for you, Micah. Um, though you know, of course, we can uh, uh, bounce off to whatever we feel like talking about, but. The, a big part of the book is about prices and why, um, um, you know, American healthcare is so expensive. So, so could you run, run through some of the like international comparisons that you talk about in the book and, uh, you know, why American healthcare is cost so much and, and what the, you know, what, what are the sort of specific mechanisms there?
3: Yeah. So everyone knows that healthcare costs in America are the highest in the world, but there's, I think, we have a bad diagnosis usually about what's causing it. And at a very basic level, there are two things that might be going on. Maybe Americans are using too much healthcare. Or maybe when we do get health care, we just get charged more for it. And you can't settle that question just by thinking and talking about it. You have to look at the data. So when we look at the data, the answer is very clear. Our healthcare costs are higher because the prices are higher. We're not getting more healthcare. We don't go to the hospital more often. We actually go less. We don't go to the doctor more often. We actually go less. It's just that when we do get healthcare, we're charged so much more for it. So that has to be the, the central diagnosis. When we're talking about healthcare costs, we need to be asking, why do we get charged so much every time we get a prescription drug or get any kind of healthcare? And the way that we pay for healthcare is at the root of the issue where we have a very Almost unique system where we rely on individual negotiations between insurance companies and healthcare providers, whether that's a doctor or a hospital. And they're the ones that are negotiating the price. The patient who walks in, you know, it, it's too late. The price has already been negotiated. And in most other countries, there is some mechanism for patients to band together and negotiate a good price, whether that's a single payer system or a national health service or something along those lines. In the U.S., it is so fractured that you the, the result is the drug company or the Monopoly hospital can just charge a much, much, much higher price. And there's really no source of leverage in the U.S. system to, to counteract that. So that's how we end up with, with the highest prices in the world. And that's why the costs are the highest they are in the world.
2: Yeah, there, there's a great thing and the complexity in the book. And you uh, make the point that the, the Cleveland Clinic has two hundred million different prices that it has to has to keep. Just just one hospital, like a big hospital, but like that is a lot of like paperwork to keep track of, right?
3: That's exactly right. And one of the things that we want people to understand is that the complexity of the system makes it a huge headache for patients and doctors, but it's also incredibly expensive. So the the same system that we use to charge the highest prices in the world itself is incredibly costly. And one of the other um, pieces that we quote in the book is that a, a hospital system in North Carolina with 1,000 hospital beds and 1,500 billing clerks. And <laughs> God. that is, is just extraordinary in, in terms of, you know, of course, there's an absurdity to it, but there's an incredible cost to it as well. And when you look at the cross-national comparisons... The number one thing that comes up is our prices are higher, but the second thing that comes up is the cost of administering the system are far, far higher, about three times higher in the U.S. than any other country. And what that means is you have, literally for every patient in the hospital, more than one billing clerk who's submitting claims, going back and forth in the insurance company to try to figure out what things are, uh, how much we should be paying for things. And the result is it's a nightmare to navigate as, as a patient, and you end up paying you know, 15 cents on the dollar to the insurance company who also has their own administrative cut.
2: Yeah. And there's like a spiral aspect to where it feeds on itself. Right. So you, I mean, I imagine the reason you hire f- like 1500 uh, billing clerks is because the fact that the rest of the system is so complicated that you need that many people just to sort through it, which makes the system even more complicated. And everyone else have to hire, you know, another increment of billing clerks to deal with that. Right.
3: Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of an arms race in that way.
1: It also seems related to and, – and I know your, your book is neatly divided up into kind of diagnosing what's wrong with the system and then getting to the policy solutions and the politics involved in enacting those solutions. But, um, you know, just for the moment, we can connect uh, some of the dots because it seems like perversely there's some like self-justifying politics at work because of the complexity and because of how many people are employed doing billing and all this, uh, you know, Byzantine work. Uh, you know, the, the customers, which is a terrible way to think of humans and their health, but the, the, you know, the, the consumers, as it were, uh, don't really know what the costs are. They don't really know what goes into the costs. And, and also that the politics seem to be, uh, you know, pushing for sustaining the jobs of all these people that are involved in not actually taking care of our health, but in, you know, sorting through all this Byzantine administrative work. So, so maybe you could talk about, like, how it's it's a not to be undone that that could at once you know uh, provide all kinds of, of freedom, but it, it's it's going to take uh, you know a, a lot of political effort because of the vested interests in this perverse system.
0: Alexi, let me jump in on that. You know, have you ever tried to try to sleep under a quilt with a bunch of holes in it? Right, <laughs> yeah. it's too short and it has a bunch of holes in it, and so if you're trying to cover your whole body, it's just not that easy, and so. What a lot of the technocratic approaches to solving that problem look like are trying to just sew more patches onto it, right? Mm-hmm. But the problem with that is that if you're one individual, let's say you're, you're the knee here. You're like, how am I going to get covered? Which patch is going to cover me? And what happens when you pull up the top, right? Or uh, you decide to throw it over your feet because, because your feet get cold in the middle of the night and. That's kind of how our healthcare system works. And the problem with it is that we've just accepted that complexity as a fait accompli rather than asked, well, what if I could just invest in one of those felt blankets that's just huge and covers my whole body and I don't have to worry. And no matter who you're talking to, if it's the knee or the elbow, right, both of them are going to get covered by a piece of felt because it's the same for everyone. And The other problem, the way that this gets, gets, gets sieved through our political process is of course, nobody wants to be labeled a jobs killer, right? But Medicare for all actually is a jobs creator. It's just that there's a churn through what kind of jobs are created. Here's the facts. 10% of Americans don't have regular access to healthcare. Imagine you were to create a system where all of a sudden 10% of Americans are now customers of the system. There's going to be a lot of jobs actually providing healthcare in that system the problem is now, <clears throat> is that we've got a lot of jobs, as Micah described, that are really not about giving people healthcare. They're more about gatekeeping healthcare, and we have a responsibility. I think instead of uh, operating to to gatekeep healthcare, to give people healthcare, and that's how this would change. So on net, this is a jobs creator. It's really quite clear. It's cheaper and creates more jobs. The difference is that rather than policing. Who gets to have health care? Those jobs are creating, created giving people health care in the first place.
2: Yeah. And speaking of individuals, Abdul, I wanted to ask you this one. You know, if you could speak in particular about um, the way that our system uh, puts so much of that incredibly high price onto, uh, actual you know single people you know because you could think of a healthcare system that was super expensive but was sort of shared equally like you just paid like really high taxes or something like that but a whole lot of our healthcare spending comes when someone you know gets a weird illness or they're hit by a truck or something and they have a very expensive uh, surgery and then they got to pay for a huge chunk of that uh on their own. So what, like, what are the mechanisms there and what do you think is like the root cause of why that happens so much?
0: Well, generally in America, we, uh, we tax regressively and healthcare, unfortunately, uh, is an extreme example of that, right? We, uh, offer, uh, subsidies to large corporations, uh, as if they're the ones who create the most jobs. Um, and when it comes to the way that we ask people to pay for healthcare, uh, it is similar. We ask the poorest folks to pay the largest amount. And then there's an added piece of that, which is the mechanism uh, by which it's paid. The problem, right, is that, you know, healthcare has gotten more and more expensive with time. And we know that uh, earning capacity and purchasing power uh, among folks has stagnated with time. And that's meant that healthcare has grown as a uh, an overall cost. And part of what uh, insurers have done, to, um, to keep their product palatable is to hide away uh, the, the, the cost of that uh, through these innovations called deductibles and, and, and copays, all all under this banner of cost sharing. And their argument here is that, well, when you have to pay a little bit for your health care, you use less of it. The problem with it is it's not that you know which health care you need to use or you don't. So, you know, that means grandma who really needs uh, to uh, to have her diabetes managed is going to forego care. Just like the person who's got the Cadillac plan who, you know, may go get an extra test that they don't really need. Everybody gets less care. And that's a real problem because the very nature of, of health care is that you don't know what care you need. That's why you go to a doctor half the time, right? They diagnose and then treat you. And, um, and so they've devised these cost sharing, uh, programs. And the one that I think is the most evil is the deductible. And the thing about a deductible is it's a paywall for the healthcare that you already paid for in the form of a premium, right? (laughs) That then it becomes an insurance policy for the insurance company on its profits. So if lo and behold, you exactly, if lo and behold, you actually need to use your healthcare, right then they smack you with a, with 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 a deductible on the back end and those deductibles can be huge and here's the problem is that nobody really knows when they're going to get sick that's the whole point of having insurance right and so they hit you on the back end right and um, and it's part of the reason why healthcare is 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 responsible for 67% of uh personal bankruptcies in America is is this deductible and so you know it's all of these mechanisms to hide the true cost of in expanding uh, an accelerating cost cycle that that you talked about earlier uh and that Micah described so well. And um and it leaves people in worse and worse straits. Meanwhile, uh corporations get away uh with 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 paying less because of course they have to pay the, the upfront costs. And um and so nobody wants to, you know, piss off their 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 friends in the chamber of commerce. So so there's that.
1: It's shocking because even if you stipulate that capitalism is good for innovation, which, you know, socialism is pretty good for innovation as well, uh, insurance companies, what would they be innovating? They would be innovating ways to screw people out of their payments for the healthcare that they're being denied. Um, you know, so so that's where the innovation would come because it's otherwise just a cost sharing uh, proposal. So uh, I was amazed in your book to find that one in three Americans had a family mem- member in the last year taken off treatment um you know, uh, because they couldn't afford to, to pay for it. And that a quarter um, have had their treatment stopped for a serious medical condition at some point uh, for, for lack of payment. So so that relates to that 67% of bankruptcies number. It's, it's just a devastating amount of Americans who uh, are, are affected by the inability to pay. That's right. And just to
3: add a, a little color here is that some, there's, there's a strain of argument in health policy that kind of doubts whether any of this really matters for people's health. But by now, we have, we have a mountain of evidence that it does. And, you know, just, just to kind of run through some of the, um, the data here. First, about whether it matters whether you're insured or not. And, it, you know, it turns out it does. And we finally have a good randomized controlled trial. The, the IRS ran kind of a, a randomized trial based on sending out letters to remind people to sign them up for for insurance under the Obamacare exchanges. And data from that, we now have randomized data that shows that people are more likely to die when they don't have health insurance. So that's that's the step 1, it's important to have insurance. But then what about these high deductibles that that Abdul is talking about? And one of the most disturbing studies in this in this area shows that if you uh it's, it's a study of women in employer-based health insurance plans and some of them were switched over involuntarily into a high deductible health plan. And it turns out those women who went on to develop breast cancer, their diagnosis and, and initiation of chemotherapy was nine months later if they were on a high deductible plan. And then if you go even to the smallest piece, so not just a high deductible, but even copays for prescription drugs, whether it's 10 50 or $100 to buy a prescription drug, there's a new extremely good uh, study out just last month Looking at in, in the Medicare population. And it shows that when you make seniors pay more for prescription drugs, they're also more likely to die when you put a prescription drug copay on it. So we now have from having insurance to having a high deductible to having copays for prescription drugs. This really matters. And, you know, being practicing as a doctor, I I see this every day. And I think, you know, those of us those Americans who aren't involved day to day in the healthcare system might not be aware that this is, this is embedded into the practice of medicine. It's every day. There are people who, you know, should be on a treatment that's better for them, but they can't get it because they can't afford it.
2: Yeah. I've I've experienced a little bit of that myself. Um, my, my employer provided insurance has gotten steadily worse every single year I've worked in my job. It's, it's, it started out pretty good in 2014, and I would say it's barely usable now. But a couple of years ago, I had some kind of a weird fever thing, and um, in I was going to get a, a drink of water in the bathroom where uh, my girlfriend at the time was, like, brushing her teeth, and I fainted and, and ended up draped over. The only time I've ever fainted in my life, ended up draped over the tub, you know, and when I came to... You know, my girlfriend had called nine one one, worrying that I was like, had a you know was dying or something. And my immediate reaction was, uh, "Don't do that. We could get dinged for a huge bill." And I ended up taking a taxi to the emergency room, you know, luckily it was nothing, but I, you know, like they gave me some saline and I was fine, but I didn't know that, you know, I was taking a huge risk cause I, I felt like, well, I don't feel like I'm dying. So, you know, I don't want to spend $2,500 in the state of like, I just recovered from a faint and like, I'm in a really logical state of mind right now. You know, I mean, the calculation in your head is, is completely preposterous, um, but mo- moving from that uh um Mike, uh, or i wanted to ask you there's a section in the book about uh you know some history and you you talk about like the long you know basically a century of failing to get um you know universal health insurance of some description you know many tries many failures probably beyond the scope of this uh you know uh, recording to go through it all But, you know, most recently we had the Affordable Care Act, like a pretty notable success in terms of uh, passing a big old policy. But I think, you know, we could sort of take stock of it a decade on and whether that sort of model is, you know, what parts of it worked, what parts of it didn't. So what, you know, what's the sort of general takeaway there?
3: Yeah, I think. The political strategy of the Affordable Care Act, in my view, rested on two decisions. And one was create a policy that the healthcare industry can support. And two, try to get some Republican support. And, you know, the, the first plank of that strategy worked. You know, pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies and hospitals were brought to the table. The whole idea is, how do you avoid what happened to the Clintons, where insurance companies ran these devastating ads that uh, the, the effort could never recover from? And the strategy was, OK, well, let's, let's just get them to our side. Um, you know, it didn't work to get Republican support. And I think there are some some mistakes made along the way in terms of concessions made that turned out to not really be um, to have, uh, you know, no fruit at the end of that. And I would say the Affordable Care Act is basically as far as you can get without upsetting the healthcare industry. And you know, at the end of the day, there were you know insurance companies weren't really as on board as as we thought they were going to be. But the bottom line is is pretty much as far as you can go. There, there's really not much more you can do without cutting into the profit margins of these companies. So what my message for reformers today is the Affordable Care Act. It was successful in terms of a, a political strategy, but that strategy just isn't available anymore. We can't get to truly universal coverage using the same strategy that was used under the ACA. To do that, you know, we need to, to look to the other success in American history for health policy, and that's Medicare. And not to, not to get into the, into the weeds unless you want to, but,
1: you know, mm-hmm. Medicare. That- oh, we, oh, we want to, Dr. <laughs> Medica. We, we want to. <laughs> and, you <laughs> let's, know. Let's
3: do it. Medicare, that was a policy that was broadly opposed by the healthcare industry. The American Medical Association is the most powerful and famous opponent of the law. But the strategy was to build enough grassroots power to overcome the healthcare industry and to overcome the conservative segregationist Democrats in Congress that were holding this up. So it was unions and it was senior citizens who built the grassroots movement over the course of decades then after the landslide ele- election of LBJ in 1964, Medicare was passed the very next year over the objection of, of a lot of the- these healthcare industry players. So if any universal healthcare plan is to pass, my view is that it has to follow much more the strategy of Medicare than the ACA.
1: And maybe we can talk about both Because we've talked a bit about some of the problems of the current system, but I think in talking about what Medicare for All offers as the alternative, we could continue to talk about the problems of the current system as well as the politics involved in getting there. Uh, For example, the perversity in a pandemic that, uh, certain hospitals had to lay off nurses and, and other people because, uh, of the, um, the absence of the, the number of elective surgeries that they're used to having, uh, didn't keep, you know, the place running. And so, uh, the ability to meet the needs of the pandemic was reduced because of the for-profit model. Uh, and this is again something that the ACA cannot address that Medicare for All can. So, so maybe, um, you know, you and Abdul can talk a bit about how Medicare for All is you have six active ingredients of it. How it addresses so many more needs than something like the ACA could.
0: Let, let me jump in with with a couple. Um, first, it's it's fundamentally universal. Everybody gets insurance. Second, right, because the government becomes your insurer, and there's one insurer. The ability to set prices in ways that stop this pricing escalator is absolutely critical. So it covers everyone and it halts the increasing cost of healthcare. Third, it minimizes the transition. So, you know, whether you, uh, you turn 26 or you get married or uh, you leave your marriage or you leave your job to write that no- novel you've always had in your mind, it doesn't really quite matter. You're still covered, right? Um, all of these things are, are some of the benefits. Uh, I'll leave it to Micah to cover some of the others.
3: Yeah, that's, that's right. I think in terms of the, the six ingredients, as we call them in the book, you know, I'd say two of them are about what's covered. So Medicare for All is universal, so it covers everyone. And the coverage is comprehensive. So you don't have high deductibles and you don't leave out big categories of care. And then two of them are about cost. The, the first one is what Abdul mentioned is when you negotiate as a unit, you now have leverage to get better prices for care. You know, and just to be clear, this isn't just hypothetical. You look at private insurance versus Medicare today and Medicare gets much, much better prices. Um, you know, whether it's a 30% to a 50% discount on private insurance by using its bargaining power. And the other uh, economic point here is that you get rid of all that administrative bloat. So again, to to put numbers on it, a typical private insurance company has an overhead of about 13%. That's money that's paid in premiums, but kept either in administrative cost and profit, whereas the traditional Medicare program has an overhead of 2%. So you slice out a lot of that administrative bloat by moving to to the single-payer system. And then to round it out with five and six is you get... Instead of um, this regressive system where low-income workers face the same huge premiums as a millionaire, you can fund it progressively, so you get a lot of the the burden off of low and middle-income folks. And then, finally, it's it's accountable to the public. And part of part of the the problem is when you have these giant health insurance companies, and they're really they're accountable to to shareholders and not to patients and not not to voters. So. Stepping back, I think really um, the the heart here, the the ethical question at the heart here is what what is the ethic that we want our healthcare system organized around? And the, the to simplify the choice, it's either a consumer ethic and a business ethic, where you know we want hospitals to try to make as money as much money as possible and maximize their profits, and we hope that along the way they're going to improve health. Or do we want to put public health at at the core? And I think one of the things that Medicare for All does is it asks us to change how we think about healthcare. Change how we think about health insurance. You know, instead of paying for healthcare like a business, if you pay for health care like a public health program, I think when you start to think about the pandemic and you start to think about the vaccine rollout, it becomes clear how all these interlocking pieces fit together. What we really want is to pay for healthcare like it's a public good to pursue public health.
2: Yeah. That's, that's a key point, right? I want, I want to just uh, pull that one out specifically on the, on the question of uh, how the sort of employer system is, is, is financed and it's financed as you say, right? As a, as a kind of head tax, like you, you have to pay for your individual coverage or your, or, you know, what is the same thing? Basically your boss pays for it as part of your employee compensation. And so that means, you know, that it's, for people who do have it, it's, it's eating up a bigger and bigger chunk of your paycheck every year or your potential paycheck. And then for a lot of, you know, lower wage workers, they just don't get it at all. Right. And so it's sort of like structured to leave out, you know, big chunks of the, uh, you know, working population that are just never going to be able to, you know, afford that kind of, uh, spending. Right. Right.
3: Yeah, and I think it's important to keep in mind the the big picture because there are all sorts of individual problems like the one you mentioned. And what it comes down to is this is the predictable result if you sell health insurance like a consumer product. You're going to have a bunch of people who are who just can't afford it and are left out. And then you're going to have a bunch of people with low income that are going to have to pay a huge amount of their paychecks to get care. And that's just a completely predictable result of of the consumer-oriented way that we've set up the system.
0: And if I can can just put that into a very concise way, the minute you start corporatizing a public good, which is what healthcare is in every other high-income country in the world, you've left it to the incentives of corporations to either exclude people who can't pay or extract from those who can. And, and that's what's happening in our system right now.
1: Yeah, very well put. And I, and let, me, let me just ask because uh, I think our audience is almost certainly on board with Medicare for All and, and are very concerned with how to make it happen and how to get there and, and what some of the resistance uh, is to it. Uh, you know, uh, Micah, it strikes me that you're a class trader in in two ways. One, in terms of the kind of progressive taxation that might be required, and we can get to the financing. But also, let's talk about doctors and their resistance historically and and perhaps today, because you know. With all the prices that are going to go down, uh, hospitals and doctors and maybe pharmaceutical companies are the ones that are going to get paid less, it seems, right? Uh, although you also discuss how doctors will be empowered, and it, and it depends which doctors we're talking about, right? Pr- primary care doctors will be uh, helped and so forth. So, maybe we could talk about the effects of this kind of change on different constituencies and, and what we should know about that.
3: Yeah, and doctors is as good a place to start as any. They've played a... Important and often obstructive role in the last hundred years of, of health policy, but we're in a watershed moment, and I think a lot of it has to do with uh, the changes to healthcare that Abdul just described. Where now, being a physician, more likely than not, it means you're an employee at a huge corporate healthcare system. You know, maybe it's a, maybe it's a nonprofit healthcare system, but it's a, a giant behemoth, nevertheless, and you're you're a frontline worker. And 50 years ago, that just wasn't the case. You're much more likely you'd either own your own practice or you'd work for a physician who owns their own own practice. And I think that that changes the political uh, position that doctors have. And I think now a lot of doctors are seeing much more solidarity with nurses and pharmacists and all the other frontline workers during the pandemic and developing more of a voice often often independent and sometimes in conflict with the the hospital and health systems that employ them. So now, for the first time, you see over the last two years, um, doctors coming out in support of Medicare for All. And you have one of the very mainstream uh, physician groups, so the um, American College of Physicians, it's the second biggest group after the AMA, and they endorsed Medicare for All as as one of of the health policy options that they support. So I think we we are in a watershed moment and I think it's important because doctors are are trusted arbiters in all of this and I think that you know when you have your there're going to be hospital CEOs coming out against Medicare for all and talking about how it's going to be bad for healthcare I think it's really important to have doctors on the other end of that line and saying you know what it actually makes a huge difference for for patients to be able to get people under this plan
2: yeah, um, that the the doctor question, you know, and how like many sort of professional uh, professional class positions have been sort of semi proletarianized, even even despite making like what is, you know, objectively gobs of money uh, in many cases, um, I think speaks to a broader political point that I, I wanted to get your perspective Ab- Abdul, on, like the, the path forward and the, and the sort of the political strategy of trying to, um, you know, just bowl through the opposition, you know, to say like, we're, we're just, we're going to take on the insurance companies and the, you know, the hospital private equity owned groups or whatever. And we're just going to try to give, uh, the, you know, the population as good a benefit as possible. And that, uh, It strikes me as that like the worse the system gets, like paradoxically, the easier the case that is to make to say that like, you know, even if you have employer provided insurance, like it's almost certainly gotten worse over the last few years mine's gotten dramatically worse there's Kaiser family foundation surveys i i read them every year it's like yep got more expensive deductibles are higher more plans have deductibles you know that there's more co-insurance and copays and it's just it just gets worse and worse and worse um but ryan
1: at least there's no sudden loss of jobs
2: <laughs> and and uh so like do you think that that, uh, that it's becoming more, you know, we like we've sort of de facto chosen a kind of accelerationist uh approach to the the way the system is organized where like the only way to realistically fix it is to just like dynamite the entire thing and replace it with something that works, you know, from the ground up, right? You think that could happen? Well, I'll tell you this. Um
0: in the past when we used to talk about health reform, the conversation was almost always about how do you insure the uninsured? Because the product that people who were insured got uh, wasn't as broken as the one people are getting now. And unfortunately, right, uh, in history, the kind of moments of reform have been when you were able to get a broad-based movement of support to focus in on challenges that, that people, whether they are unemployed and poor or working class or even middle class uh, could unite around. And that is quickly becoming the case uh, in our country. And so there's this moment where the median American is looking at their insurance and saying, I am not sure about this, right? if the operative term of insurance is sure, I am not sure. I'm not sure that this is going to be there for me if and when I get sick. I'm not sure I want to be paying this much out of my biweekly or monthly paycheck. I'm not sure that these people are giving me a good deal. Um, And because of that, right, there is really a broad movement uh, that is collecting around this issue uh, and making it possible. I know people look at this moment and they say, well, for two straight elections, we had the option to elect the president who supported Medicare for all, and we whiffed on that opportunity. And yet, I actually think we're winning, right? This is a conversation we continue to have. We will continue to have. And people are coming to it in droves. The other point I'll say is this. The situation has gotten so bad that ironically, there is almost this too good to be true element. When we talk about Medicare for all, people just assume that healthcare has to be a terrible experience because they proceeded to make it such a terrible experience for so long. And so we've also got to be careful about that effect uh, when we talk about this thing uh, and we we talk about just how much better it could be. Uh, It's not too good to be true, but there is going to be a lot of work that has to be done. And there are going to be trade-offs that we have to make. And and we talk a lot about those in the book.
1: What do you think the key points that we should educate others in and educate each other in are with respect to that fear that it's too good to be true and that what the trade-offs are. Uh, is it in combating kind of the nonsense of um, these these p- poor man's Medicare for All versions, which pretend to be about choice and not taking away your choice. Uh, where do you think the political education should should focus so that people actually understand how much better Medicare for All is than these kind of watered down versions? L- let me lay out a couple of those. Number one, they're going to tell
0: you it costs too much, right? But I don't really quite care as much about federal budgets or even state budgets as I care about kitchen table budgets. And when the average family looks at their kitchen table budget, they look at that line item of health care and say, wow, not only is that very high, but it's also a wild card. I don't know if that axe of a deductible is going to fall uh, on my head, right, in the next month if something bad were to happen. The second thing, right, that they're going to talk about is choice. But the choice that we want isn't a choice of health insurance programs that you have to pull out an actuarial table to decide how likely it is that you're going to get sick in the next couple of years. Or, you know, if you're a woman, that you're going to get pregnant, right? What you really want is a choice of what doctor you see. And right now, the biggest single gatekeepers of what doctors you see are the health insurance companies. The third they're going to tell you is about rationing. And here's the thing. We ration healthcare all the time in this country. We just ration it by income instead of rationing it. Uh, otherwise, and even the rationing that we're talking about, right? Um, we do that anyway, even if you're insured and you have really high quality health care. If you want to see a cardiologist, you're not going to just wait a couple of weeks. You're going to wait months potentially. And so that happens all the time in this system. And it happens because of that mucked up interchange between insurance uh, and providers oftentimes, you know, you want to get a service. You have to get a pre-authorization from an insurance company to get that thing. You're waiting, uh, for days and they may say no, right? Um, and, uh, and then the last thing they'll tell you is that it's going to be a jobs killer, but we already talked about this. It's going to make more jobs and it's going to make the kind of jobs that, that provide people healthcare rather than gatekeeping, uh, people from it.
2: Right. Yeah. Uh,
1: Just really briefly. I'll go ahead, Ryan. Yeah.
2: Oh, I just wanted to, to, to also pull out like the, the freedom, the choice to not choose just something I've been thinking about quite a bit Mm. recently. It's like, you know, if you, if you set up a a sort of menu of options for insurance where I have to look at it and make decisions about like, you know, what do I want to spend versus what level of coverage? I don't want that, any of that crap. I don't want to think about it. I just want it to be oh, yeah. there when I need it. And I will pay a lot of money just to get rid of, just for there to be no headache involved. Right. And so
1: Ryan is be the scrivener. He prefers not to, he prefers <laughs> not to have to choose that. Um <laughs> no but in in terms of the politics I want to ask because and this might be a point of difference um if I can you know uh infer from the from the different candidates that that you've uh, been advising the difference in financing, but also the politics of pitching the financing as either something that requires raising taxes or not, even though under both Warren and Bernie's proposals, and and here I'm keeping in mind the fact that the the enemy wants to highlight differences as a way to con- divide and conquer. So so I, I'm. I'm You know, aware of that. But in terms of both the actual financing and the politics of it, what are your views on um, how that should work and what the politics are of it and the pitch to the American people? Is it something where, sure, we have to raise taxes, but the bottom line at the kitchen table is going to be better for you? Or is it better to do it in a way where there isn't actually technically an increase in taxes? Maggie, you want to take the first step?
3: Sure. I think the, the big picture here is that there are, as we go through in the book, many plausible ways to, to pay for Medicare for all. So I think kind of the, for folks who, who want the details, who folks like me who want to see it, to believe it, you know, you can go through and, and go out piece by piece that there are many different ways to do this. I think, um, one, no matter which financing plan you choose, I think the the bigger piece often gets lost which is that we're already paying for most of healthcare spend in the US through public dollars. So, you know, in about 61% is the the latest research. 61% of our spending is already public through Medicare, through Medicaid, through tax breaks for private insurance. So, I think if you can get people to understand how much they're already paying into the system, I think that's a huge a huge first step, and one of the things that Abdul and I agree with is is you want people to feel like they have a stake in the system, and you know, kind of one of the the psychology of Medicare and Social Security is people see what they're contributing uh, each month, and then they know they trust that it's going to be there for them on the other side, and you know, I think that's part of the psychology that we need to create with Medicare for all to make people understand what they're already paying into the system because right now pe- people really don't don't know. It's hidden in so many intentional ways. You know, the biggest piece being what's deducted from your paycheck that counts as an employer contribution, but really that's just a deduction from your wages. So if you can get people to understand what they're contributing to the current system and then to feel that ownership under Medicare for All, I think I think that goes a long way to to building political will for the program.
0: I will. Um, I'll also say, look, I think sometimes there's a way that we get hemmed in um, by the past in the political uh, lines that were drawn by it. I would have supported um, either Bernie Sanders approach or Elizabeth Warren's approach to getting to Medicare for all because it's a whole heck of a lot better than what we have and what else was being uh, being proposed. At the same time, I I do think it's important for folks to have buy-in into the system, right? Part of the reason that people support uh, Social Security and Medicare, even if they don't support other uh, public goods provisions by government, is because they believe that they paid their stake in it. And I think it's really important politically that people feel like they paid their stake in it. Um, And so I do think it's important to make sure that uh, everybody is bought in. And um, even if that stake is small, uh, based on a progressive income tax or it's large based on a progressive income tax. Um, at the same time, uh, I think that, um, we have to be really thoughtful about all of the questions that still have to be answered about how we do this right. And part of what we wanted to do with this book wasn't just to, uh, articulate that Medicare for all is, is, I think, the most serious idea Uh, when it comes to actually solving all of our problems. But because it's a serious idea, right, there are still questions that remain about how we implement particular policies, and sometimes people hear that and they say, "Oh, no, no, no! Don't, don't, don't say that there are questions." Well, that that, that would indicate that we're not we're not there yet. No, there are questions about every single policy that is uh, being proposed. We want to lay it out because in being serious about it, we think that it's important to think through all of the details. And um, there are a lot of different ways that you can go on that with various political or policy trade offs. That being said. You know, it's like I know that I can uh, I can pull a suit out of my closet and I can wear it with different ties or different shirts, but it's still a suit. And um, and Medicare for all is exactly that way, right? And it can be tailored to uh, to to what we need um, at that moment. But there are those active critical ingredients uh, that 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 make it a Medicare for all program that allows it to be that you know felt blanket uh, that I talked about earlier, rather than you know the quilt with a bunch of
2: holes. Yeah, that. And that uh, perspective you outlined, Micah, I think that's maybe the key one, you know, because you're talking about putting in a new, you know, like a new paid leave system, like so really nice, expensive welfare benefit. Like if you, if you're going to assume, well, we're going to be at full employment, you're going to need to raise taxes to compensate for inflation and, you know, sort of fund it in a sense. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Like, we are already paying so much money for like, we literally pay for two high quality healthcare systems. We pay for one in one and like a third in tax and then like, an, like another one on top. Um, And so, you know, it's just a question of like redirecting our, our, uh, you know, like funding streams. And so therefore like, like the, the the question of financing is is almost more about how far do you want to squeeze the prices down uh, to to to, um, you know, iron out as much savings as possible. And, and you could imagine, you know, a, a Medicare for all like if you went really stingy and made it like Canada, you know, which is actually cheaper than just the U.S. of. Uh, uh, the tax funded part of our healthcare system. And it would be like basically a big chunk of austerity that you would have to compensate with more spending. Um, but so like, I, th- I feel like that's a really important thing to people to realize that, you know, the money is there. It's a, it's a question of program design and how you want to sort of like, you know, compensate for all the various like like stakeholders that you want to, you know, cater to, not the bad ones, the good ones. Um, and not so much a question of like, how do you pay for that? You know, it's like like give me every, OK for every single penny in taxes, you know, Bernie slash Warren. Right. Like it's a, it's very much a, a, a up to us. Right.
3: Yeah. And I think to echo what Abdul's saying, one of the things we try to do in the book is is to move past that first layer of question. And I think so often in the policy wonk space or the health policy space, people ask these questions of Medicare for all as if they're rhetorical questions where it's like, Oh, well, how much are you going to pay hospitals? It's like, well, here, here are a set of answers. You know, that's not, that's not like an unanswerable question. And one of, the, and right. what we do in the book is we try to put on some, some guardrails for the debate and say, look, the, the lowest you're going to pay hospitals. Is probably around what Medicare pays hospitals today and the most you're going to pay hospitals is like the average that they're getting from all public and private sources together. So that might not be the most exciting answer, but for people who want (laughs) to (laughs) sit, but for people who want to sit down and think through like what decisions would have to be made at a legislative level to get this passed, you know, our, our book is also for them to say, look, you know, here, here is the range of possibility. And here's where the policy in the politics overlap because it's not a dollars and cents question as you say for okay, how are we going to uh to 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 raise this money? It's more about well, do you want to propose say a higher wealth tax or do you want to ask hospitals to to get by on a little less, or you know do you want to uh, go after the specialist surgeons a little bit more, or do you want to be a little bit more lax and, and pay higher rates? Those are the kinds of political questions that that dovetail with the policy and economic questions. And what we hope people come away with is to to try to see the big picture and to see what the moving parts are, because the bottom line is, if this ever gets uh, to the point, if and when it does, where we're having these serious discussions, it's it's predictable, I think, what the four or five big pieces are going to be where the movement is. And one of the things that, you know, both Abdul and I are passionate about is how can you marry together the, the policy and the politics to try to get a coalition that, that can, that can win.
1: Absolutely. And uh, Abdul, do you have to go in the the next minute? And is is that, uh, I I do, unfortunately. Okay, cool. All right. No problem. do you have the time for 30 seconds? My partner will kill me if I don't ask you to say something about the pandemic because you're an epidemiologist. Sure. If, there's, if there's anything you, you, w- you would offer, um, maybe that people are getting wrong on the Twitter when they're trying to be epidemiologists or, <laughs> or something that you would say that, that we, should, we should know and be informed by in terms of what ne- what's needed and how to think about what's coming.
0: Yeah, Lexi, I really appreciate that question because we've been focused for a year now on how to respond to the pandemic. But the thing about public health is if you're responding, you're doing it wrong. It's all about preparation. Mm. And what this pandemic has shown us is that our preparations, not just, you know, for a pandemic, but our preparations for any sort of uh, potential shock, and there will be many coming uh, around the bend, as Texas has shown us, has been so minimal, um, simply because so many of the public goods that our government ought to be providing as a matter of course, we have sold off to major corporations and they have either uh, extracted from the majority of us and or uh, excluded the rest of us. And um, you see that across the board, whether it's the way the pandemic forced uh, a record number of women out of the workforce because we haven't thought systematically about childcare, And of course, yes, schools closed uh, and, and daycares closed. But, you know, we should have been resilient in the system. Around thinking about paid leave, right? About, around thinking about how we keep, um, uh, women in the workforce, how we, uh, take on the gender norm that tells us that women should be providing health, uh, childcare in the first place. Um, you know, you look at the way that hospitals, uh, were stuck in this pandemic, battling both the pandemic and, uh, potential bankruptcy because, uh, they were not getting the reimbursements from elected procedures. Meanwhile, uh, health insurers, are making record profits in quarter two uh, of 2020 and they're lobbying the government, right? Rather than to put those folks who lost their health insurance onto government plans, they're lobbying so that the government will pay into uh, a, a COBRA scheme, right? To pay them to do the thing they should have done in the first place, which is keep people on their insurance. Uh you look at um the the way that uh the bottom half of our economy was forced to choose between lives and livelihoods. And now, right, while we spent the last year calling them quote-unquote essential, uh we, we really meant was expendable because we're not even willing to pay them $15 uh for their time, which by the way, right, $15 uh amounts to a full times year of work of $30,000, right? I mean that's 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 not that much and uh and 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 so all of these circumstances right all of them every single one reminds us that um that we were not prepared and that we should have been prepared, and the choice we have over the next decade is do we continue in this system of austerity that tells us to to, to sell these things off or do we recognize the folly of our ways and fix it? I, I'm, uh, I I do quite a bit of writing on on this question in the incision. I hope folks will check it out. Uh, but uh, but in the meantime, I hope folks will check out the book, uh, medicareforallbook.com if you're interested. And the incision is incision.substack.com. But um, really taking on this question of what does it mean to prepare for the next one? And there will be a next one. It may not look like this, but there will be a next one and we've got to prepare.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Abdul. Appreciate all you do.
0: Appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for, uh, for giving us the time and i um, grateful for what you do. Uh, and, uh, and hope folks will, uh, will, will be thinking a lot about the kind of advocacy that we need to build this moving forward.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Abdul El-Sahid, Dr. Micah Johnson, the book is called uh, Medicare for all a citizen's guide and we will link to everything we mentioned in the show notes uh thanks guys for coming on the show much appreciated
0: appreciate you thank you thanks so much for having us
1: cheers